Hi, I'm Insane Mike. Tonight, this episode is presented in the newest in podcast technology. This process is called Spectro Splatter Immerso Sensor Vision. This technique allows you to submerge yourself even deeper into the full listening experience that puts you inside the podcast. It's actually quite simple. Here's how it works. Anytime somebody mentions Patreon or Shudder or if Andrew does an impression, <laughs> just slap yourself in the face. That's right, William Castle movies on this episode of Attack of the Killer Podcast. Attention planet Earth and beyond. Stay tuned for Attack of the Killer everybody, Insane Mike here, your host of Attack of the Killer Podcast. Welcome. We are going to be talking about William Castle movies on this episode, so this is going to be a fun one. Uh, we're really stoked for this. Uh, but for those of you out there who are just tuning in for the first time and you're wondering, what is Attack of the Killer Podcast? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, it's a show about horror movies, a group of friends, we get together, we talk about our common bond, which is horror films. And we usually pick a topic and you know pick a few films with the, that meet that topic and and we discuss the show uh, we come out with the show every other week, but if that's not enough killer podcast for you, then I suggest you hop over to Patreon and become a patreon subscriber and become one of what we call the attackers um for next to nothing, you can get all kinds of cool stuff by being a Patreon supporter, including bonus episodes that play on the opposite weeks of the normal episodes, so you can hear us rattle on every single week. And if that's not enough, we have videos. We have I have a YouTube show that's just for the Patreon supporters. So go, go to Patreon, check out uh, the different tiers, pick one. Uh, if you go to Patreon, AOTKP... And you can check out the tiers from there. And start getting all this cool extra bonus content already. Um, want to take a moment and and mention our sponsor, Shutter. Shutter. <laughs> Shutter is an online streaming service for us horror fans. So all kinds of cool stuff on there, um, including the new Creep Show uh, series that just started. Has anybody watched any of those yet? I'm going to get on it, though. Same here. I, I know Jason watched the first episode, um, but uh, I haven't had a chance to watch any of it yet. And it looked pretty cool. First episode, I had Adrian Barbeau in it, and I'm like, oh, that's that's a nice callback. Hell yeah. Yeah. But anyway, tons of great stuff. Movies, series, you name it, right there on Shudder. And it's only $4.99 a month, $49.99 for an entire year. But I'm going to tell you what, man. You can get a full month of Shudder for free. How? No. What's that? I said, no. <laughs> That's right. How do you do that, you ask? Well, you put in a special promo code that we are going to give to you right now. So I hope you're writing this down. AOTKP. So if you go to Shudder, put in the promo code AOTKP, you get a month of Shudder for free. 
<clears throat> for free. Yes. Uh, also, I want to mention, kind of going back to Patreon, we have two new Patreon supporters, two new attackers on the block. Yeah. That's right. Becca Reinhardt uh, from the In the Mic of Madness podcast right here on our very own Prescribed Films Podcast Network. She is now a Patreon supporter of the show, so thank you, Becca. Thank you. And I'm going to slaughter the name, but Brian Godsill uh, is also a Patreon supporter. So thank you, Brian. I hope uh, I hope you get your money. I know you're going to get your money's worth. What am I Thanks, saying? Thanks, dude. But thank you so much. Special shout out to both Brian and Becca right here on the show. And I mentioned, and Becca has her own show in the Mic of Madness, which is on the Prescribed Films Podcast Network. What is that? That's our very own podcast network. Uh, 17 shows and counting on the network now. So it continues to grow a lot of sweet, cool, kick-ass shows. I suggest checking it out, and you can do that at thepfpn.com. That's the, I'll spell it for you, pfpn.com. Okay, so with that said, it's time now to introduce you to the podcast crew. In the movie The Tingler, when it played in theaters, William Castle would hook a little electroshock things in the seats for at certain points throughout the movie, you'd get a little shock, as if the tingler was, was crawling by, just as an awesome extra little scare. Now, he remembers the time he was at a theater and had a tingling sensation in his ass. Tad good, everybody! That was, like, really, really long and drawn out for... <laughs> Little no, to no payback, but whatever. <laughs> oh come on, Actually, that was gold. Don't, don't you miss us, Brian? Actually, that oh, was yeah. the, that was that was the French Tingler. <laughs> In Thirteen Ghosts, you can see the ghosts when you put on a very special pair of goggles. And when he wears his beer goggles, he, he sees all kinds of really special things. Andrew Wassum, everybody. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's been a while since I put them on, but yeah, I do, I do remember, well, I slightly kind of remember what happened. And unfortunately, no Jason with us this episode, but to fill those those big 19, you know, size shoes, I think it's 19. Skis. <laughs> Both feet in one shoe, back from a long hiatus, our very special guest... The one and only Brian Clark, everybody! Hey, eek, boo, nice to be back, and I never take my beer goggles off. <laughs> Alright, so we have a lot to discuss, so maybe we should just get right into our first segment, everybody's favorite segment, What We Watched. Take it away, Ted. All right, well, Mike already said, you know, it's everybody's favorite, so I guess I don't have to go into that. But uh, I was actually almost having Brian's voice on the podcast about to go into, like, the, the horror news, you know. Yeah. Uh, I almost instinctively wanted to tell you about all the new Halloween stuff I'm hearing about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll go right into what we watched, where we talk about what we've watched since we last recorded. And for Brian, that's going to be a really long segment, because... <laughs> you know, it's been like it's been like a year or so. Um, Brian, what have you watched? Thanks for stealing my joke, ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it's been about a year and a half, and I have a list of 650 titles here I'd like to tell you about. You think Jason's bad? Buckle up. <laughs> no, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it down to just a, a couple uh, recent ones. We saw It Chapter 2, finally, just this last weekend. Uh, I don't know if it was worth waiting two years for. I didn't think so. I loved the first one. I thought this one had a lot of strong parts, but uh, overall it was kind of a mess. It was too long, and it did the thing I really, really hate, where a movie spends a lot of time setting up that a very specific thing has to happen, and then they just completely ignore it. Like what? But well, I guess the if you thing don't about spoil, but yeah, I was gonna. I don't know how spoilery, but then again, the movie probably won't even be in the theater anymore by the time this episode drops. That's true. So screw it. What are you talking about? Uh, so the whole thing with the the Indian lore on that uh, that jar or, oh, yeah. or basket thing where he's all you know you you the have to. Shade. The, the lampshade, yes, <laughs> where you can only attack the creature by by in its true form, which is the deadlights, and they they summon the deadlights down into the basket, and then they pop out, and Pennywise comes back, and they stab him a bunch, and pull his heart out, and everything's fine. The deadlights just go out, so you know it was all just a bunch of hooey. But over, I mean, I'm glad I saw it. I'll probably rewatch the first part at some point. I don't know that I'll ever go back to part two. Uh, a movie I absolutely will go back to a bunch more times is Ready or Not. Uh, oh, yeah. At this point, I, I can say I am a diehard Samara Weaving fan. I have liked her in everything I've seen her in. This movie just cemented Agreed. that a thousandfold. She is so oh. much fun. The whole movie is a blast. Um, and the ending, just, I was dying laughing. Fucking rich people. Um. That's why. <laughs> And then uh, one that is not in the theater, probably never will be, uh, but you should check out if you get a chance to see it either at a convention or just buy a copy from Joshua Kennedy online. It's a little movie called House of the Gorgon, uh, made by a guy from Texas named Joshua Kennedy. He's an independent filmmaker. Uh, he's made a whole bunch of little, you know, sort of love letters to, to sci-fi and horror movies of yore. And this is his tribute to Hammer. And he's got uh, Veronica Carlson, and Caroline Monroe and oh uh, god damn it I forgot there's two other actors from Hammer and I'm completely blanking on their names and I should have written this down so sorry for not being prepared but uh, anyway it, it's a great it's not even a reunion because they were never actually in the same Hammer film together but uh, he, he's got a bunch of uh, classic horror actors and uh, it's it's based on his love for the Hammer movie The Gorgon. And, uh, you know, the score is great. The title card even looks like a Hammer film. And, you know, it's for what he does with the tiny budget he had, you know, because obviously he spent most of the money on plane tickets flying people over from England. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> check out House of the Gorgon. It's a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, just a little convention stuff. Uh, we got to go to Crypticon in Minneapolis finally this year. And cool. that was a lot of fun. Uh, both the kids got to meet Heather Langenkamp. She was super sweet to them. I went for Caroline Monroe. Uh, I was really excited to meet her, and she just could not have been nicer and, and funnier and just seemed... so Because she doesn't get over here to do conventions a lot. I mean, it's by far not her first one, um, but 
you know, her, her trips to the States are few and far between. And she was just, you know, made sure to spend a bunch of time with every fan. I got my uh, At the Earth's Core theatrical one-sheet poster frame, uh, signed by her, and she even signed it as Princess Dia, which was really cool. Um, she had a panel, told a lot of great nice. stories. When I went to take the picture with her, she, you know, I, she and I did a picture, and then she's like, "Is that your family? We got to get everyone in here. Bring them over here." So she called Terry and the kids over, and we all got a picture with her together as well. And and yeah, she's just awesome. And then, but probably the highlight of the whole thing was Isabella got to meet Doug Bradley, and you know, I, I'd heard some horror stories about him being kind of a grumpy dick at conventions. And so, you know, I was worried that he would be a little standoffish, but, you know, she's a kid. I figured he'd at least be nicer to her. He could not have been cooler. He, you know, everyone has bad days, so those stories I've heard, you know, probably just he was having a shitty day. But it, that it was his birthday, too. So there's something going around with, you know, actors being at conventions on their birthdays, I guess, lately. Um, but she had made this pinhead doll out of one of her monster high dolls she likes to customize these things and so she you know wiped all the paint off the face to repaint it and give it the weird eyes and she pulled all the hair out um and and you know drew the grid on there and stuck all the pins in and everything and she had it propped up on her shoulder so when she stepped up to his table he you know made this uh like you know pretended to be afraid kind of playing along and in his great Liverpool accent, I, I don't want to alarm you, but there's there's something on your shoulder. And so he's like, I've got to get a picture of this. This is so great. So he took a picture of her, and she was freaking out the rest of the day. Like, there's a picture of me on Doug Bradley's phone, which would sound weird out of context. Right? <laughs> but so later that day, he does a panel, and we're, we're sitting in on it fairly close up to the front. But this is, you know, hours later, and he's probably signed 200 autographs since then. You know, no reason to remember anyone in particular. But he gets up and sits down on the dais, and as soon as he sits down, right before the panel starts, he goes, Hello, Isabella, and waves at her. And Aww. he goes, he, he calls oh, her out wow. and gets on, the gets on the microphone and goes, Earlier today, this little girl appeared at my table with this amazing doll that she had made herself. And, and stand up and show every." So he had her get up and, like, hold the doll up so everybody could see it. And <laughs> that was pretty neat. She That's was thrilled. awesome, yeah. That's too too cool. He asked her, did you cut the ends off all those nails and glue them on yourself? And she goes, no, I just stabbed him into the head. <laughs> he, he cracked up. I think that kind of made his day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Was that everything you watched then? <laughs> Not everything, but we'd be here until tomorrow night if I said everything. So I think I'll just cap it there. Okay, well, um, I'll just get the next long one out of the way. Andy, what did you watch? Well, I got a, I got a few things. I, I was able to pick up a lot of VHS from this from this lady. She didn't have a... Uh, she was having a moving away sale, and she turned out to be like this film buff. She did not have a lot of horror, but fortunately, I picked up a lot of David Lynch stuff that I still need to go through. And But she did have... Uh, and you can probably view this elsewhere, but I just really wanted to watch it. It's uh, Ed Wood, A Look Back in Angora. Oh, it's yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a documentary. And it, it, you know, it told about his, you know, his exploits with trying to get films made. Because I'm a huge fan of the Tim Burton at movie, Ed Wood. I, I, it's, it's probably in my top five movies of all time. 
that's how much I like it. And it's 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 almost it almost you know plays out like a tragedy because I mean he had by the time he got kicked out of like this really crummy apartment like in Skid Row towards like the end of his life and he pretty much as far as I can tell pretty much drank himself to death. Oh yeah, but uh, you know, and it and it shows like you know videos towards like his, the 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 end of his life, you know, and he wasn't very old when he died. It's but you know just like this, it showed like this uh, this big out, you know, like that bloat in, in the face that an alcoholic gets, you know, and it's just it's really sad, but it's it's also very interesting, you know. It's got you know archival footage of like you know Tor Johnson and stuff like that, but I, I would recommend it if you're. If you kind of like, you know, the, uh, uh, the, you know, the b- really bad B movie stuff. I mean, they talk about uh, Sinister Urge and, of course, Plan Nine and Glen or Glinda and Orgy of the Dead and Bride of the Monster and they and they touch on Bill Lugosi too, like that. And they 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 show like interviews of uh, Bill Lugosi when he gets out of rehab and how he talks how he's going to be, ta- be going to you know go right back to work working with Ed Wood and stuff and of course you know Ed took Carabella when he was you know trying to get off of morphine and stuff like that so but yeah it's uh it's interesting uh yeah I just want to interject on Ed Wood here real quick cuz I'm a big Ed Wood fan and you know talking about toward the end of his life it was it was really tragic and how he nobody knew who he was and he was destitute and you know basically drank himself to death and just ended up what work he could get was working in like softcore porn films and and really bad softcore i mean if you know how bad an ed wood movie now now mix that with softcore porn you know it's, (laughs) it's, it's it's even worse but uh uh, the real tragic part, I think, is he died in 1978, which was like a year or two before the book The Golden Turkey Awards came out, which th- that book in particular it was was a huge help in creating Ed Wood's cult status. Like no oh, no cool. one no one knew or cared who Edward was by the time he died, and then like two years later, Plan Nine is regarded as the worst movie ever made. And Which arguably would not have made him feel any better, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but he probably he, you know he would have gotten some recognition out out of that, and I don't know. I think I think Ed would probably be uh, would be in on the joke. He'd be kind of a uh, probably a, nah, Tommy Wiseau is probably not even a, a good example, but I think he would. I, Manos, I think I he would Manos. play into it. He'd play into it. I feel like the best way to look at it is uh, are any of you familiar with the show Mission Hill? It's a yep. short-lived one-season cartoon from like 20 years ago. It's a fantastic show. The final episode of the show is a sort of a love letter to Ed Wood and the midnight movie cult that grew up around Plan 9 um, where the there's these two uh, older gay men are, are living in this apartment building and they're you know some of the, the side characters and it's all about how one of the how they met is one of them used to be a filmmaker, and he was going to make. He was supposed to make this great, um, you know, the day the Earth stood still type scientific, or uh, excuse me, science fiction uh, allegory film. And slowly the budget gets whittled away and whatever because he becomes obsessed with this stagehand, who is his husband. At, you know, later on in the show, um, 
And so just rewrites the movie to star this Tor Johnson looking guy. And it just becomes this plan nine style travesty. And, you know, he gets fired and never gets to make another movie. And so it's like his great shame his whole life. And then uh, one of the other characters discovers that this movie exists and plays it in their little theater. And, you know, at first he's mortified because he thinks everyone's just going to laugh at him. And then he goes into the theater and sees people maybe not enjoying the movie the way he wanted them to, but he sees that it is bringing people happiness after all, and that his work is worth something. So I I feel like, you know, Ed in real life might have had that same kind of come around where he would have been upset at first and then kind of comes to, can't come to terms with, well, you know, I'm never going to be Cecil B. DeMille, but God damn it, I'm Ed Wood. Yeah, and I, I would think he would. I, th- I would think he would love it. I mean, yeah, maybe he would be a little upset at first on being regarded as the worst filmmaker of all time. But against the the thing is, is that he has transcended well beyond other filmmakers of his kind who've made really bad movies in the in the uh, in the fifties and sixties. So. Um, I think I think at the end of the day he would have loved it, but you know I think that's also where I feel like Ed Wood's a true artist because most true artists aren't appreciated until after they're dead. But I always thought it was weird. It was always it was like literally, like about a year or two years after his death that all of a sudden everybody recognizes Plan Nine. And and more great things came out of that too, like um, his lost film Night of the. Um, uh, Night of the Ghoul gets gets uh, released, and that movie that movie never left the processing um, studio because Edward couldn't pay the fees to to get to get his reels back from the processing plant. So it's surprisingly good. well. I mean, for a given interest of good, <laughs> or for for a given value of good, <laughs> I should say. But uh, yeah, Night of the Ghouls is actually not too bad if you if you ever get a chance to see it. Yeah, I, I really like that one a lot too. It's got some really cool atmosphere into it. The uh, the weird seance with the whistling ghost things kind of odd, but uh, but also too, he was doing stuff well before, you know, uh, he you know well before people like Kevin Smith or Quentin Tarantino, where there was character connections between all the films, you know. Um, yeah, Night of the Ghouls is technically a sequel to Plan Knife from Outer Space, based on a lot of the dialogue and some reoccurring characters, especially uh, Kelton the cop. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I think we've tackled Ed Wood. Uh, <laughs> what, what other VHS tapes did you find? <laughs> well, um, well, the, this one, this one, I actually bought because I hadn't seen. It's a Wes Craven movie that I had I had not seen, and I've always wanted to see it. And that is uh, Deadly Friend. <laughs> used to and, be a staple on Monster Vision. Uh, I tell you what, uh, I don't see. I mean, it's interesting. You want to try different things, but I don't see how you went from Nightmare on Elm Street to this. <laughs> um, how, how you had. From one moment you had razor fingers, and then you had uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer doing Spock fingers, walking around like a robot. And uh, but I tell you what, it's got the best uh, 
scene that I've ever seen with a basketball in my entire life. <laughs> yep. I, you know, seeing Mama Fratelli's head explode by hit, getting hit by a basketball is well worth the price of admission in this. <laughs> is awesome. Um, and how her headless corpse is now magically, you know, four feet taller than the real Anne Ramsey. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I watched it. Uh, just uh, yeah, it reminded me of dodgeball on yeah, on the playground when in the 1980s. Of course, you'd probably get thrown out of school by now by the stuff that we did. But uh, anyway, Wes Craven's Deadly Friend. Check it out if you want to see uh, Christy Swanson say BB and uh, do the live long and prosper fingers and you know, throw a basketball at, like, you know, Mach 3. Next up, uh, this was when, while we were, uh, while I was on a, another podcast, and the uh, bonus episode was pick your favorite uh, Stephen King movies, I was going through, you know, my, my Stephen King VHS and, you know, other uh, DVDs, and the wife said she wanted to sit down and watch Silver Bullet. So I was just like, uh, okay, you hardly ever want to watch, like, anything that's, like, you know, remotely scary. Um, it doesn't hold up, but I'm always, uh, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Everett McGill, you know, mainly because People Under the Stairs and Twin Peaks. And, uh, I will never turn down watching Gary Busey just be Gary Busey. So, uh... But I've always kind of had a soft spot. It's not my favorite one, but I'll I'll pop it in every now and then because I just I just enjoy the movie, and I'm kind of on the fence about uh, buying the uh, new uh, Blu-ray from uh, Shout Factory because it's got new artwork and everything. But it'd be interesting to see what the special features are. First. So, anyway, Stephen King's uh, Silver Bullets, based on the novelette Cycle of the Werewolf. Uh, next up, and uh, it seems like I do this every time because I'm on like this weird Charles Bronson kick from Canon Films, just because you know that and Electric Boogaloo is probably like one of the best documentaries about film I've ever seen. Um, I watched a movie called Murphy's Law, and you know what? It's not that great. The dialogue is horrible. It, well, it's a Canon picture. Well, you know that should tell you something right there. But the one thing that I noticed that it has to do with horror, they retreat to this cabin, right? You know, in the hills, you know, because they're the, the, him and Bronson and this, uh, like this car thief are on the run. And he's actually a cop because he's been framed for a murder. But I started to notice things about this cabin. I was just like, oh, there looks like there's tile on that top counter. Oh, there's a very familiar open staircase there. Um, yeah, this is the same cabin that, uh, young Tommy Jarvis, Corey Haim, confronted Jason in. So they are at the same cabin as, uh, Friday the 13th, uh, final the final chapter. Exactly. And I was just like, oh, I kind of like, that's like, this is the only reason why I even remotely like this movie, because I get to <laughs> see this, see it like, yeah, in a different setting. So I was just like, oh, since it has a connection to, uh, uh, Friday 4, I definitely have to mention it. So, anyway, Charles Bronson, Murphy's Law. Uh, next up, I found this one, and I had not seen this one before, but I figured 
A, it's got Reggie Bannister, and B, Screaming Mad George does the special effects. And it's not a Phantasm movie, believe that or not. And it's Silent Night, Deadly Night for the initiation. And the only thing I can say to you, it's a movie, and I watched it, and I still have no fucking idea what this movie is about. I literally cannot tell you. Um, uh, Clint Howard is in it, and but Brian Usna directed it, so I'm thinking, okay, maybe we have like a society, uh, you know, Return of the Living Dead three kind of vibe to it. Plus, oh. you know, like I said. It's got Screaming Mad George, and it's got Maude Adams, who I think was Octopussy in it. So I was just like, hell, why not? Right? Um, don't watch it. <laughs> it's Too late. I, yeah, it's like, I can't make sense of it at all. Uh, but, like I said, it's it's part of a series, so I figured I'd give it a try. I only paid a dollar for it. It's a cut box. Um, yeah. it's I guess it's part of a collection, since I'm a little bit of a completist, but yeah, Silent Night, Deadly Night Four, Initiation. I think what is there five? Yes, and a, and a reboot. Wow. Just watch the first movie, and just watch the second one for Garbage Day. And the third one's the one with Bill Mosley, right? Yeah, oh, it is. Yep. I see. I haven't seen that one. Bill Mosley with the. Uh, oh, I, yes, I have. Exposed sorry. brain. Exposed brain. Yeah. It's such a waste of Bill Mosley because he doesn't have any dialogue. Like, why would you cast the most eccentric, crazy, like, um, I don't even, flamboyant, like, out there actor that can give great performances to do a character that doesn't talk. But anyways. <laughs> um, I was able to pick up a lot of DVDs uh, from uh, Half Price Books this weekend because we visited my wife's parents. Not that they like you know work there or anything, but uh, how, how are they? <laughs> They're good. They're good. They say Does, hello. Doesn't her dad own like a tea shop? Yep. Awesome. Yep. T Smith in Omaha. Yeah, get to plug in. Yep, plug. Uh, but I was able to and. Since uh, they do have uh, one coming out from Scream Factory with, you know, the bells and whistles and the poster and all this and that. But I found a cheap uh, DVD version of The Blob from 1988. And it's got uh, Mike's fantasy wife, Shawnee Smith, in it. (gasps) And uh, Kevin Dillon and also... By the way, a very small role by Bill Mosley. He's one of the guys in the suits, the little uh, protective suits. Yep. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, screenplay by Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont, which have their, you know, ties to The Walking Dead, and Chuck Russell also directed Nightmare 3. Uh, it's still, still a lot of fun. I, I really liked this. I, really, I still really like this movie. Um uh, it actually has uh, Julie McCullough. I know I'm spelling, I'm saying that wrong, but uh, she was actually uh, Kirk Cameron's uh, girlfriend on the gr- on Growing Pains. So yeah, all sorts of silly little ties in this movie. But nevertheless, the Blob. It's 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 still fun for me. Next up, I have something that what I I got it for like a dollar, but it said it had like all this you know hype behind it, and it's really it's it's okay but the way that it's shot it's like one tiny little baby step above shot on video and it's called creep bam 
Have you guys heard of this? Nope. I've heard of it, but yeah, I haven't seen it. Um, it's it has you know basically <clears throat> this this van is tricked out like on the inside and outside with like all sorts of different ways to kill people. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's. It's about this guy who wants to buy the van because he's he's working at a car wash and he doesn't have any way to get around and uh, yeah uh, I guess it's worth one sitting in in my opinion but I mean it had all this uh, thing all over the case with you know like this film rocks it's a scary homage to eighties horror movies and I'm just like eh. Well, you know, in terms of like car movies, it's no Christine and it's no Duel, but uh, it's it's worth one. I it's worth one peek, I guess, and then you could probably forget about it, I guess. And uh, to round things out, me and the wife watched the second season of American Gods. I won't get too far into it unless you, have you have you guys checked this show out? Uh, because the wife uh, read the novel and she's kind of a little bit of a Neil Gaiman fan. I have not watched it yet. Yeah, I saw the first couple episodes. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, this the the wide array of characters and how uh, basically they 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 touch upon like how anything can really truly be. You know, you've got your mythical gods of like Odin and and Thor and this and all this other that, but they they also say that like technology can be a god because they're, everybody's so attached to it. Media can be a god. So, I mean, there's all these physical manifestations of gods that, you know, people are, you know, basically they, you know, they consider them deities, you know, because, you know, everybody's, you know, has their attention and uh, focus on the media. They have their focus and attention on technology, and there's there's a sex god, and there's all this that. So there's like there's so many more you know gods that are vying for worship, and then they there's going to be like a what they perceive to be a war between the old gods and the new. So, but it's just been the first two seasons have just been like this giant setup, and I hope they get things. Uh, and, it, and it's been good, don't get me wrong, but I really hope they get the ball rolling on this war that they've been, you know, harping on and on about, you know, because, I mean, they got, like, they've got a good, you know, really good pedigree of actors with Ian McShane and Ian McShane and Peter Stamare and uh, Orlando Jones is in it, and he's a freaking hoot. He's, he's like, really, really good. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the third season. And sorry, that was a little long-winded, but uh, that's what I watched. All right. Well, I guess that leads you, Mike. What do you watch? Well, mine will be short because I haven't had much chance to watch anything. I also, I'm pretty sure I've said it already. I'm pretty sure I've talked about it already. But I also saw it chapter two. But I wanted to bring it up because I want to be the guy on the show that says that I thought this movie was awesome. It was good. I felt like. The movie defenders I listened to, you all thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah, I really, I, I, I don't get the too long thing. The only, the only thing I could think of that I, I felt like was kind of unnecessary in the film was the subplot with the. Uh, oh, I always forget the character's name, but the 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 bully that grew up to be the serial killer, 
and Bowers. Bowers. And only because I like I feel like they just kind of dropped it in this where I think it's it's an actual probably one of my favorite things of the book is is that character and and uh what goes on with him and I think they do some cool stuff in the movie but I just think they kind of dropped it and just kind of from being on that uh, other on the Movie Defenders podcast I learned that they shot a lot more of that character. So I'm actually looking forward to a longer version of the movie. So there. Wasn't there supposed to be a the It Chapter 1, like a Blu-ray release that had like a lot more stuff to it? There was a lot more meat to the story. I mean, like I heard rumors that like Pennywise like literally chomps down on a baby or something. And I'm not exaggerating. Well, that'd be cool. <laughs> There's a, there was supposed to be like a director's cut, like released sometime around this time of of the movie, but uh, maybe maybe somebody was pulling, maybe some website was pulling my leg, or I, I can't remember where I read it, but I mean they were like they were like dead serious, like when they wanted to it, they wanted in order to you know uh, make the most out of the profits, they were going to release this director's cut of it, chapter one. Uh, and have it coincide with the release of it chapter two so i mean they could just you know milk it as much as they could i know that they ended up putting it back in theaters the first chapter for um like a week but it was just the standard version with like a sneak peek like five minutes of the second movie Mm. and uh, i know the directors talked about he wants to make like an ultimate cut of the two movies together with added footage He's got all kinds of ideas about a prequel. Um, I don't know if it's all talk or if it's actually in process, but time will tell. Yeah. Well, if you did listen to the Movie Defenders podcast, I guess you knew you knew my. I, I had some problems with it, but I, it didn't, you know, um, prevent me from enjoying the movie. Like certain parts, uh, I thought really, really worked. But uh, yeah, some parts I thought were very, you know, Paul Bunyan. Come on. <laughs> the length the length didn't bother me, but it's like uh if if a movie's long and it's good, I don't care, but if it's a long a, a lot of uh footage or I don't know, if I have to sit through a movie I don't like and it's long, that makes it seem even extra long, so <laughs> Well, yeah, I agree with that, but I also feel like if if you're doing stuff in your movie that doesn't service the story like right. like long 10 minute slow motion scenes or some shit just to be artsy that's where you lose me and i feel like everything serviced the story and i felt like the time the time uh you know flew by for me so and i can easily get bored speaking of bored uh the other thing i watched um <laughs> 2017 i'm so i have not been this upset about about something related to trauma since probably the last trauma release. Um, am I just too old for trauma now? Do I just don't get it? I saw the. It's on Hulu. It's called Toxic Tutu, and it's a supposed to be. At first, I thought it was just supposed to be a straight up documentary about Mark Togel, who played Melvin the Mop Boy in the original movie, and why he hasn't oh. been seen for years, and now all of a sudden he's doing conventions and stuff. And I thought it was just going to be a, a, a film kind of following him around and talking to fans and stuff like that. But then I watched the trailer, and I'm like, oh no, no, that's not what this is at all. 
So I can watch the trailer, and then I'm like, okay, well, it's supposed to be a mockumentary, because I guess there's this whole subplot going on about the true story above behind the scenes of the Toxic Avenger and the fact they used real toxic waste on the set and all this shit. And I watched the trailer, I'm like, this just looks terrible. And then I watched the movie, and it was even worse. It is <laughs> such a hodgepodge collection of like it's it's if you took all this footage all this footage like if it was shot on something physical like film and you put a a set of small little kitty scissors in a in a pile of the of all this footage in front of a kindergarten class and some scotch tape and this was the movie that you would get <laughs> Jesus! It is such a the editing of this. It, it just dri- drove me nuts. It, and it's not even a mock. It, it wants to be a mockumentary, but it's not even a mockumentary because several moments of the film just turn into straight narrative storytelling, where Mark gets kidnapped and there's this whole conspiracy about the toxic waste, and then it gets like weird and surreal, and obviously it's full of trauma gross humor but it, it 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 can't even do that right and it's got some like way bad shitty cgi and it is the biggest mess of anything i've ever seen in my life i freaking hated this thing um and it's completely incoherent um you know the first half it looks like they tried to make this movie try to make a movie while going to a convention and i've seen that done before and done way better if you've ever seen comic book the movie by mark hamill that's a great example of of shooting shooting a film straight within the environment that you're at at like a comic-con and kudos to him to be able to get that done um but this like this wasn't didn't even feel like they even tried to do something decent you know there's a lot of scenes that take place and the hotel room of the convention center and stuff like that, but then it, it goes surpass that. So you can't you can't even blame that they they did tried to shoot a movie around a convention as the reason why this turned out to be such a mess because there's a lot of stuff that takes place in the trauma building outside the trauma building out in some suburbia area and it's just it is just dumb. And Mark Togel, he was awesome as Melvin the Mop Boy, but he should never headline a movie ever. Um, hmm. Yeah, so don't check this out. It was it was trash. And again, is maybe it's just me. Maybe I just don't get trauma anymore. But I watch movies like this that try to that try to be trauma and I feel like they don't get what what makes trauma great. But maybe I don't get what makes trauma great. What I what I see in trauma is probably different than probably what everyone else sees, but that's it for what I watched. All right, well, somebody asked me what I watched. Oh, yeah, what'd you watch? Um, mine's going to be short. I didn't watch a whole lot. I actually revisited House of a Thousand Corpses right before I went on vacation and right before I saw Three from Hell. So I saw Corpses, and uh, it's been quite a while since I watched that, and uh, it actually held up for me, and sort of uh, watching it, on like my new TV on Blu-ray sort of made me fall in love with it again just because you can tell that Zombie was sort of given a good budget for this one. Um, 
and it was shot at Universal. You know, it's like for a while here we've had a strew of low budget zombie stuff. After Halloween two, he sort of got pushed out of the of the uh, studio system again. So it's it's sort of interesting to see that his first movie, where he had the least amount of experience, was probably like one of his biggest budgets he's had. And uh, yeah, I still love it. It's colorful and crazy, and the ending's really stupid, but I love it. <laughs> and uh, now you're gonna make me buy the damn Blu-ray, Tad. God damn it! Well, I was just like, man, I, I don't remember this. Like when I, I don't remember this being so like beautifully shot. Like you can, it, 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 some of the little things just crack me up because it's clearly it, it's as if like I would have made a movie when I was 14 or something because it's like. Universal gave Zombie a bunch of money and he knew, he's like, I'm on the Universal lot so I can use all my characters are going to be watching Universal monster movies and uh, the monsters and I'm just going to do a big ass creature from the Black Lagoon mural on one of the walls for no reason, just because I can because I have the rights Uh, and then of course we all know what happened and Universal dropped it but he still somehow got away with using that stuff, you know, when he bought the movie back and they sold it to MGM, who then dropped yeah. it and sold it to Lionsgate. Um, and, yeah. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, so, you know, some of the performances are pretty crap. Chris Hardwick sucks in this, but um, it's fun to <laughs> watch him get... Yeah, it's, it's fun to watch him get tortured, and, and it was fun to watch him get tortured at Halloween Horror Nights. Uh, then we went and saw Three from Hell. I saw it with Jason, so I'm sort of bummed he's not here to, to talk about it. But after we saw it, we we stood outside of the theater and talked about it for quite a while before he went on his way. Um, did not love it. I wouldn't. I don't know if I even liked it. Um, oh no! Really? Yeah, I was pretty. I mean, I, I'm. I want to watch it again on at home or on a different setup because I felt like. Is one of the Fathom movies, and those are really hit or miss because of the presentation. It's a little different at every theater. And I've seen pre- plenty of Fathom events at the Sycamore Theater in Iowa City, which is the closest theater to me that does the Fathom stuff, and it's never been an issue, but this time it was a big issue. Um, it was weird because they were doing these little pre-show things, which was tr- like stupid Rob Zombie trivia that everybody knows. And then... It was like 7 o'clock when the movie's starting, and boom, it goes right into the movie without any kind of like, now for your movie or any any kind of warning. So people are all still like talking and hanging out, and everybody sort of was like, oh, is, is this the movie? And they didn't dim the lights at all. They kept the lights at the same brightness. Like, it just felt like no one was paying attention in the projection booth, because the movie just started, and it was it was very quiet the whole time. And something was up with the sound mix. Um, I don't think it was the movie itself. I think, it, like I said, it was a theater. Because every time that there would be a gunshot or some something that should be loud and, and make you jump and startle, the, the sound actually got quieter. Like, the gunshots were, like, muted. It was really weird. Um, huh. And like I said, they never lowered the light, so it was sort of bright in there. And they didn't mask the screen correctly. So there was big black bars on both sides and it just felt very unprofessional. I, I just, it sort of bums me out. Like I, maybe I think I sort of felt the same way with 31 where like Rob, and it's almost 
sort of weird because the same sort of thing happened to John Carpenter when he did the thing. He finally got this like big studio project and it didn't do so well. So he sort of got, you know, they, they cut him from their contract and he sort of had to go back to making crafty movies without as much money. But I felt like Carpenter sort of, uh, used that, used his strengths and, and did due diligence with what he had. And, you know, he did, they live and that kind of stuff. But, um, with Zombie, I don't know. I guess I can really, really, really appreciate and I respect the hell out of him for... He could probably just... You know, their studios are probably trying to throw money at him to make reboots or make what they want and he had such a miserable time making the Halloween films that he's just like, fuck it. I don't care if I'm not making a bunch of money. I'm just going to do the movies I want to do. And I can respect that. He brings back his actors and does his thing. Um... But overall, Three from Hell felt like he was... I mean, you're never going to... He wasn't going to be able to top Devil's Rejects, but it just felt like he went back to the well to try to please fans or try to... I don't know. And it just... It felt like a piss-poor attempt at that. I felt like 31 was a huge step down. I hated that movie. Mm -hmm. And this this is slightly better than that, but I don't know if that's just because... I like the characters already, and it's they're established. I thought Bill was awesome. He he's he was clearly Bill Mosley was clearly the the movie. I mean, he was he was great in the scenes he was in. Um, I won't spoil too much because I know it was only in theaters for three days. Uh, but you can tell from the posters this one's very heavily in, inspired by like the Charles Manson documentaries and films and. And uh, Otis definitely takes on a Charles Manson-like character. He, he's a little more crazy and preachy and that kind of thing. Uh, baby's fully off the rails by this time. And uh, he finds a way to keep keep the story going, but it's so far-fetched that even in the movie itself, the characters are sort of like... Like, the news can't even believe that these characters survive, So, but we're expected to believe that they'd all survive. I don't know. It just felt like it, it, a very long wait and a big buildup for a little payoff it just it, it felt like they maybe shouldn't have done it because he, he talks about it in the special features after finding out about Sid Sid Haig's health issues and stuff he goes well we could either you know uh, just not do it or you know do what we could and it's like well maybe you shouldn't have done it maybe you should have just done something else but um I don't know. I was pretty disappointed with it, and everybody we were with was not too pleased with it either. So Jason didn't like it either. Nope. No, he didn't. Oh. Yeah. I think he liked it even less than I did because oh I, I my, found, I think yeah, I think out of the, all the like one person we were with was like really pissed that they paid and and took the trip to Iowa City for it. They were not happy at all. They were like really bumped by it. But um, like I said, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, you, you still need to watch it, and uh, we'll see where it goes from here. I hope he does something completely different for his next project. But another thing I watched, I guess, was the uh, just on Friday night I watched the Manhattan mm-hmm. Short Film Festival, which is a one night, like three hour block of short films that they put out theatrically. And I think 400 screens across the world, and they play them for like a week. And our theater at the mall, for some reason, our chain theater gets it, and they play it like three times. 
um, I've been going for like the last six or seven years to this thing, and some are really, usually when we watch this, I'm really, really impressed, and I try to find some of the shorts, and I try to uh, reach out to the filmmakers, and this year I don't think I'll be reaching out to any. I was really sort of disappointed in their selection because they get like 3,000 submissions or something. They talk about how many submissions they get, and they only pick 10, and they only do you know 10 that show theatrically across the world. And I thought, well, for having that many, I'm surprised these are the 10 that got picked. There was some, there was some good stuff, but um, I feel like the stuff I've seen at smaller festivals can do better than this so i think that's pretty much all i watched i didn't I w- i've been on vacation so i haven't really watched a whole lot of movies all right well let's get into the topic at hand which is william castle movies i'm gonna go ahead and start us off here with 1959's the tingler i'm william castle and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. Don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler? Check this shit out. This is a movie about Vincent Price. He's this pathologist, and he he's trying to discover, um, you know, fear, fear, what makes people scream. I don't know, whatever. And he somehow discovers that all of us have little parasitic creatures that grow in our spines. And they feed off of the 
off of when we are experiencing fear. And if we don't let out that fear through screaming, the creature will kill us and we'll die of fright. This movie was filmed in Percepto, in, uh, Percepto which, is, which was where they would take um, certain seats throughout the theater, hook them up to like uh, little electrodes or whatever, and shock you throughout different parts of, of the film. This is probably my favorite William Castle movie. One, it's got Vincent Price, so you got that. You got Vincent Price... Um, uh, on an LSD trip, which is a magical moment. The and, first uh, theatrical uh, LSD trip, I believe. This is true, too. And there's other things that go on to this movie besides the gimmick of Percepto that I feel is really at the height of William Castle and his gimmicks. Like the scene with the movie theater's owner's wife and when she's getting scared to death, because she's mute, so she can't scream. So, spoiler alert, she gets scared to death because she can't scream, and the tingler, the tingler uh, kills her. Anyway, but there's that scene where she's seeing, like, these things that are, these, like, monsters or ghosts or apparitions coming after her, and she goes into the bathroom. And again, this is 1959, it's, it's all black and white movie. But the sink starts dripping blood, and the bathtub is full full of blood, and those shots are in red, and I just think it's the coolest looking scene in in this movie, just to have those those few moments there in red, and then I feel like this movie has well, at the moment when they do the percepto, um, where they are shocking people in the audience is when. The Tingler, I mean, this is this movie ha, is also kind of meta, because the Tingler, basically, well, when the, when the um, deaf-mute woman dies, Vincent Price does an operation and takes the Tingler creature out of her spine, and it's, like, grown to this, like, huge, way bigger than, than it should, and it gets loose into the movie theater at one point, and the screen goes to black, and Vincent Price, who's technically talking to the theater audience in, in the movie itself, but in reality is really talking to us, the movie viewing audience that's watching this and watching the Tingler in the movie theater. And I think, I think that moment is just so cool. He's like, you don't, you can actually, Andy. You should probably do the impersonation. Well, well, yeah. Him, uh, Vinny, doing his uh, breaking the fourth wall like a bastard. There, like, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, scream for your lives. You know that kind of shit. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, so I love. This is probably my favorite William Castle movie of all time. the The idea is ridiculous. The concept is is way out there, and I and I love it for that too. It's such a bizarre premise, and I love how straight and serious and how well Vincent Price does in con- trying to convince us as an audience member that we all have little parasitic creatures living in our spine that feed off our fear 
and we'll die if we don't scream. Um, he's the saving grace of the movie. I mean, he's the only way that think, anybody can even, you know, take this halfway serious. I think well, in, in, you shouldn't. In cinema history, he's the only actor I feel that could probably take a ridiculous premise like this and make it believable. Uh, but yeah. uh, but I also kind of want to get into it, but maybe not right at this moment. A little later on, I want to kind of get into some of my theories about about William Castle's um, perception of what a horror movie is. Um, but uh, but what do you guys think of the Tingler? Andy, oh, I think boy. it's a lot of fun. I uh, saw this one maybe. Four or three, four, three or four years ago, for the first time when we played it at the Capitol. Um, cool. And oh, I, really? I, oh, awesome. I so wish I could have somehow hooked something up to a few chairs to get people screaming, but um, it's still really cool just to see in an old theater, even if you don't have the uh, the actual tinglers. But yeah, that was. You're, you're a little guy. You could have just crawled around under the seats and grabbed <laughs> people's ankles. Yeah. 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 People frown upon that, though. And, you know, a lot <laughs> of this your, guy brushed your beard against any exposed skin. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's an idea. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it it was cool to see it for the first time in the theater, and this is the first time I've actually seen it since seeing it in the theater. And I I just love, um, like, like Mike just said, uh, I just love that kind of stuff where they number one are in a theater i just love theaters and movies you know yes. and then breaking that wall down and talking directly to the audience i fucking love that i think it's so cool and uh something we could play every year in october and people would have a blast with so i i really got a kick of like vince doing like a running commentary of his acid trip he's just like the window it won't open you know, he's just like, well, it, it shows him, like, he's trying to, like, open it, you know, it's just like, yeah, he's just like, everything that he's doing. But, he's o- like, but he know, does open he's it. Qu- he opens it. Well, yeah. He's like, the window yeah. won't open, but he opened it. The walls, the walls. Yeah, that's, my, know, that's just... my favorite part. The walls, the walls. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh. Yeah, I mean, what really can be said? I think you really just have to experience this movie. I, I mean, just uh, at first I thought, did did anybody think that like when you first saw this, do you think that like Vince injected the woman with uh, LSD to make her scared? Like when she, when she fell asleep and then she woke up and she, then she started tripping. I was just like, did he fucking go there, you know, to like experiment on her because she knows. Well, I think he that, knows that she can't scream, so he. he so, and this was after his acid trip. I think so that's. I with, think that's what they intended to do. I mean, it's like, it's kind of that red herring moment. You, you're led to believe that Vincent Price did this to this woman, and then that way, when you realize, again, spoiler alert, that it was that it was her husband that perpetrated all this, then that's the twist. Yeah, but I mean, it's like. I'm thinking, I'm watching this movie, it's just like the spouses in this movie are freaking awful. Oh, his just, wife in this movie. Yeah. Um, just, I love the fact that, you know, the way that he scared his wife to death, and I'm just like, the the whole death certificate on the thing, I'm just like, really? Um, but, I mean, I'm I'm willing to forgive that, you know, because I saw, like, a Sasquatch with an axe, you know, like, he throws that thing, and it's just, uh, and, the, and, the, and the blood in the sink was was really good um 
you know how she's the 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 wife poison well not poisons him uh she drugs vincent you know and she she sets the tingler loose you know to to get him uh um i almost kind of want they they i love the fact that they put the tingler in a 35 millimeter canister i almost want to get like my own and put it in there and just you know display it that way uh Oh, and the guy's facial expressions at the end of the movie, like when when his wife sits. Spoiler alert: uh, when his when uh, the deaf mute wife uh, sits back up, and the facial expenses, his mm-hmm, facial expressions mm-hmm. in this are just hysterical because oh, yeah. he's not screaming, and it's just he looks like he's like trying to shit. I, I mean, it's just yeah, uh, the 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 tingler with uh, Percepto, gotta love it. That's my two cents. Brian? Yeah, I like this one a lot, too. It's it's a ridiculous premise. I mean, it's it's possibly some of the worst fake movie science <laughs> yes. ever committed to film. Completely saved and made not believable. But Vincent gives it his all in his honor. Like, when all this ridiculous crap is kind of coming out of his mouth, it's just like, yeah, all right, that sure, of, of course, there's a, a, a microscopic tardigrade that lives at the base of everyone's spine that, uh, when you're scared, gets bigger and bigger and becomes so strong that it will crush your backbone unless you scream and make it shrink. Um, <laughs> the the subplot of the conniving spouses is very similar to House on Haunted Hill. Yeah, I, I want to know what William Castle is against Vincent Price and putting in, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he always gives him, like, shitty wives in his movies. Because this, this was the follow-up he made to House on Hill, where he, God, I can't talk tonight. This was the follow-up to House on Hunter Hill, where, you know, he still had, I don't know if he still had him under contract or whatever, but, you know, still had that contact with him, at least, where he could say, yeah. hey, Vinny, I want to make another movie together. Um, and this time you know put an actual monster in it but uh it, it, it's a lot of fun the percepto equipment doubled the movie's budget oh my i, I find that like wow. the, the movie cost two hundred fifty thousand dollars to shoot and then he spent another 250 grand developing that equipment and installing it in the theaters um that colorized scene when you know the the tub of blood and the bleeding sink it's. I think it's really cool. The like the way they did that. They, they painted all the sets monochrome, and even put black and white makeup and clothing on the actress, and then just you know had you know filmed the scene in color. But the only thing on the oh, set wow. that was in color was the blood coming out of the sink and the blood in the tub. Holy um, shit! I did not know that. That is awesome. Wow. Yeah. Some sources say that they just shot it in flat black and white and then colorized the blood only. But I've got to say, like, even now with digital technology, colorized, like, if you've ever watched, like, a on those uh, Ray Harryhausen Blu-ray box sets, for example, they have colorized versions of, like, um, it came from beneath the sea and 20 million miles to Earth. Yeah. Even with modern and, like, Ted Turner levels of money thrown at it and modern technology colorized black and white films just look flat and shitty yeah and that red and that red in that scene is so vivid 
and sharp standing out from the rest of that. It pops. I think there's no way it, it definitely had to have been, you know, shot in color, but the set was made black and white. That's, I, I can't see how, the, how they could have possibly have made the color look that sharp just with, you know, colorizing parts of the film. Yeah, exactly. And it's seamless, too. Like, you would imagine, you know, 1959, if they're going to color, color a bunch of frames like that, that, you know, there might be a little bleed at one, yeah. you know, of the red somewhere, but, uh, but no, yeah, it's, it's sharp, crisp, clear, and, you know, no seams, so yeah, it would make sense to me, though, that they would shoot it that way, and, wow, that's just actually super awesome that they did that. No, I really like the Tingler as a creature, I mean, the design is practical, it's got to fit around a spinal column, so it's, of course, going to be a mm-hmm. sort of centipede-looking thing. But those little the the pinchers on the end, it really reminds me of the uh, the ear slug thing that they put in Chekhov in Star Trek yes. II: The Wrath of Khan. Oh yeah, I, I I would bet money that that little ear slug in Star Trek was totally influenced by the Tingler. Like somebody in the design department of Star Trek was a was a William Castle fan. That would make sense. <laughs> and here's another testimony I think to Vincent Price as an actor. The only moment to me that I really feel like the the tingler could be convincing in its in its movement because like most of the time it's being pulled by a string, right? We all we can all plainly see the string. We could tell we could tell by you know the 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 force that it's being pulled upon that it's being dragged along by a string. You know, yes, you get you get the little bit of leg movement as it kind of. Uh, as they kind of um, run across a carpet or whatever, but uh, you know, but the pinchers don't ever move or, or whatever. But the the only time I feel like the tingler, the creature effect is convincing to me is when that first scene when he takes it out of her spine and he's wrestling with it, and that's that's a testimony again to Vincent Price as an actor. Like I feel I feel like he did a really good job of faking being attacked by this like piece of rubber centipede thing it's the the scene where he removes it from her for the first time and all you see is the silhouette and and moments of surprising gruesomeness are going to be kind of a running theme in these movies for the era they were made but when when you see him in silhouette pick it up like he's lifting it out of her body for the first time you see liquid dribbling off of it which obviously is blood and spinal fluid and stuff, but even the suggestion of that in 1959 is a little, a little surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Tigler. Yes, definitely. Definitely a must if anybody's wanting to check out um, when Castle movies. And, and, you know, just horror from that era, you know, late 50s, early 60s. I, I, I think it holds up against most most anything of that of that kind. You know, like William Castle gets the reputation of being a, a schlockmeister, and, you know, and a lot of that has to do with uh, the gimmicks. Well, one, I love the gimmicks. I wish gimmicks would come back. Um, right. You know, but... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, he, put, he put asses in seats. You can't deny that. Exactly. And then but, he zapped them. But exactly. If, but look at the quality of the filmmaking. You know, we just got done talking about the blood scene. You know, 
you know, somebody like Ed, going back to Ed Wood, he would never think to like shoot that scene in color and then just paint everything in the air in there black and white. You know, that's that's true but, castmanship right there. I think of, that, of William Castle's how much is how much time it would take to do that. With well, Ed Wood could have shot two movies in the time it took him to paint that <laughs> exactly. Set, so. True, but you know my point. You get my point though, like. I, I feel like um, William Castle doesn't get enough recognition as being as as a filmmaker that he 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 was a really quality filmmaker. Oh, he absolutely was, and I think Rosemary's mm-hmm. Baby would have it still wouldn't probably have quite been the classic that it is now, but I think it would have been a lot better than most people give credit for when when it's talked about that you know he was the original director and then the studio kind of fucked him over to give it to Polanski. Yeah, because they I didn't think have... it still would have been a goddamn good movie. Yeah, because well, they, they, they were all they were all afraid that people were going to think the movie was like all schlocky because it was William Castle directing it. That's why he lost. He didn't. He didn't get to direct it. And that's and what I'm I talking about. Vincent it's Price not fair. Wasn't Vincent Price himself actually attached to Rosemary's Baby at one point as well? I'm not sure about that. I've I've heard, I've I've heard that, you know. I was just like, can you imagine freaking Vincent Price in that apartment building? I mean, I bet you it, it would have made I don't, you know, it would have made the movie pretty damn interesting if you ask me. Oh yeah. You know, one of these, you know, satanist neighbors. I mean, come on. Oh, it would have been it would have been cool to have him in there and have him in a more of an artistic horror film like a Polanski movie of that era, you know, like the closest thing I feel like he really got to, to that in the horror genre was like the Corman Poe pictures, but even those, you know, were, were like, uh, were their budgets on their sleeves, I guess you could say. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So the tingler, everybody out there, check it out. All right. And so next, um, Tad, what's our what's what's the next movie we should talk about? The next movie we're going to talk about is the 1964 Straightjacket. Something happens to me. Something frightening. Ah! Ah! No! From the loneliness and simplicity of an isolated farm to the sophisticated elegance of a country estate, Straight Jacket mounts to a crescendo of electrifying suspense. Sinister. <laughs> frightening. Bill! Bill! Don't you go in that room! Joan Crawford in a shattering screen portrayal. A frantic woman pressured by straight jacket tension. Leave me alone! You let go of me! Listen to me! Just call me Lucy. I wouldn't like my little girl to think I was trying to take her father away from her. Carol and Michael are going to be married! And nobody's gonna stop it! Ingeniously designed to shock and startle, Straightjacket may go beyond the limits of your ability to endure suspense. Mother! He's gone. Tell me. 
the author of the famed novel Psycho, the director of the widely acclaimed chiller Homicidal, the co-star of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, join forces to create a frightening classic of shock and suspense. Starring Joan Crawford and uh, Leif Erickson and Diane Baker. Another one, obviously, directed by William Castle. And uh, the story's pretty simple on this one. A daughter witnesses her mother perform a double axe murder on her on what is her dad, obviously the, the mother's husband and his mistress during a crime of passion. Um, and then we flash forward her mom gets out of the asylum tries to renew her relationship with her daughter carol um but heads start rolling again so um is it her mom who is it you got to watch to find out but uh this one's another fun one a lot of cool uh axe murders are always awesome you don't see a lot of those now um this is a first time watch for me me as well and it's something that I've wanted to check out because I watched the FX series Feud. I don't know if anyone else saw that with Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon, but it was about um, Bette and Joan, and they actually recreated a lot of scenes from this, and, and the series takes place and talks about um, the life of uh, Joan Crawford and Bette Davis and there's some there's a small part that focuses on the making of this movie and how um, Joan Crawford sort of as she as she aged she was sort of forced to do these what were considered B movies or schlock movies and how it sort of affected her her real life relationship with her real life doctor and uh, you know it's sort of interesting that she filmed this movie about a relationship with her daughter and in real life, she was actually struggling to keep a relationship with her real daughter. But, um, yeah, first time watching, it sounds like, for maybe everybody, Mike, had you seen this before? I have seen this before. I actually have it on DVD. Um, I first was, a, I mean, I always knew it was a William Castle movie, but it kind of really first hit my radar, um, thanks to a movie I know I've talked about before on the show, but one of my favorite underground comedies, Morgan Stewart's Coming Home. Which is with oh, John, yeah. yeah, with John Cryer, and in that he's a horror movie fanatic, and he actually yep. meets this girl who's just who's just like him, another horror movie fanatic. So they're they're at her parents' house, and they're having a conversation about uh, you know about what movie they're going to go see that night. And the dad starts talking about Straightjacket and how like show me another picture where a human head rolls down the stairs, and I'm like, oh, I've got to see this movie. <laughs> so. So, um, yeah, it's, it, I definitely have it on DVD as part of my um, William Castle collection. And um, I think I first got it and saw it for the first time maybe two, three years ago. But, yeah, I, I love it. it it's, it's, such a, it's such a great movie. And, again, I think it's another movie that really highlights, I feel, um, the skill of, of, a, of a director that William Castle is. Uh I I really think you know you you when you hear like you notice that she they took the uh, Lizzie Borden song yeah. yeah you know two girls outside you know uh, 
such and such was it uh what's her name lucy uh oh dang it what's joke uh lucy harbin you know lucy harbin took an axe and gave her husband 40 wax when she saw what she had done she gave his lover 41 maybe maybe that's how it went i think it sounds sounds right yeah yeah, I was just like, uh, that's, I was like, dude, that's definitely the, the Lizzie Borden thing. Um, I will, one of the things that I saw that I really liked, and I think that it holds, it, it even held up today because it's just, uh, it lured me into a uh, false sense of security, is the the door gimmick towards the uh, the end of the film where I believe Mike's father is uh, just going upstairs and, and I guess he was washing up or something. And he's opening the door and I'm just like, okay, this is 1964. He's going to be behind the door. And he's just like, okay, you know, nothing's there, blah, blah, blah. And he goes into the closet and he's going to get his shoes. And then the killer comes out, uh, you know, behind the uh, behind his suits or whatever and then, you know, attacks him. And I was just like, wow, that actually... I'm thinking for that time, that psych out must have been really, really good. Because I was just like, I thought it was pretty decent by today's standards. Oh, it's a great scene. It's such an, it's such a creepy, tense, scary scene. I mean, for its time, I mean, like, holy cow, I feel like it's still a really effective scene. Yeah, like I said, I think it still holds up by even today's standards. Um I love seeing George Kennedy in this, and he was so young. Um, you know, because, because uh, like, uh, yeah, one but of my has he movies. has he ever had a decent set of hair? Like, he's got crazy ass I, hair in every movie he's ever been in. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, even you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Cool Hand Luke. And his hair's all, all over the place like that, too. Um, naked gun, yeah, crazy hair. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's kind of a turd in this, but uh, even he didn't, you know, deserve what he got. Uh, some of, uh, you know, like, Joan Crawford's dialogue, I think, was really good. Like, everyone's a stranger. Uh, you know, because she's been locked up for 20 years. Uh uh yeah i thought it was just was i thought it was really good i mean it's like she she kind of tries to be like the past version of her 20 you know you know when she was 20 years younger and she's bar- she's borderline hitting on her uh daughter's fiance borderline <laughs> she's petting his mouth <laughs> yeah. okay well okay yeah uh she's well yeah she's pretty much trying to get in his pants i guess um but yeah, I was just like, "Damn, man, she's yeah, she's she's really really weird." But I mean, anybody would be you know, you know, be weird if they were locked up that long. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. I I don't know what else to say. I mean, I thought it was really really good. I mean, I don't want to uh, give away the the twist, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. I this this was this was fun. I I I enjoyed it, and I think you guys. I I recommend it. I I really liked it. I know uh, William. Oh, go ahead. Nope, nope. 
Go ahead. I know William Castle isn't exactly known for nuance. This movie's about as subtle as a dump truck full of vibrators driving through a nitroglycerin plant. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed it. It it starts strong, the middle is kind of boring, and it could have had a great ending, but it just kind of went on a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. Like, there are a couple of points where, like, that's where they should have ended it. And, and then it keeps going, and they're like, okay, this is trailing off. And then it kind of crescendos a little bit again, and then it just keeps going and gets a little maudlin. But, like Andy said, I, I, I won't completely spoil it, because, you know, it's a murder mystery, so people want to watch it. They're going to not want the twist spoiled for them. Uh, but going back to the, um, you know, I, I said surprising bits of gore were going to be a running theme. George Kennedy gets his head chopped off, and you see blood geyser out of his neck. Yeah. Right? It's like three frames, but damn. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> that was some heavy gore. <laughs> yeah, I'm- you know, I guess not a lot of people probably realize that. Everybody always cites, like, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis being the guy really start doing gore stuff, or, you know, or George Romero with Not Living Dead really going away from, like, horror movies being, you know, for for Saturday matinee kid movies kind of stuff, you know. But, uh, but yeah, William Castle, now that I think about I, it even more, he really got gruesome in a lot of, a lot of films, for its time well, especially. Well, I think that this also, uh, you also need to take into consideration that the writer of Psycho wrote this uh, film, Robert Block, is yeah. the writer. Yeah, I was going to ask if uh, you guys noticed that or not, that it was Robert Block that wrote the script. I did uh, not know. Well, yeah, and much like the end of Psycho, there is a big information dump as to why things happened the way they did. It's like kind of like the Scooby-Doo ending, you know? It's just like, and this is what he did with the lights and the projector and the, you know, the fog, you know? It's just like they... they but, you know, normally films like this have that, like, at the ending. It's just like they, they give you a big explanation. But I don't mind it so much. Well, I, I'm going to bring up my my theory, my theory of connection to Scooby Doo when we talk about the last movie. Um, <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm still holding out, uh, but uh, I just want to point out here again the gimmick with this movie. Not as cool as like you know Percepto or what we're gonna what we're gonna see with like um, House on Haunted Hill mm-hmm. uh, or what they did with Thirteen Ghosts. But as per Homicidal. usual, he's still. Or homicidal, yeah. Well, it was homicidal. Homicidal, the one where they gave out the uh, the life insurance policies. Well, not the life insurance policy. It was if you were too uh, if you were too scared of being scared to death. Like if you thought you were dying of fright, you could come back and get a refund at the coward's corner. And that was what they did at that homicidal. I don't know if they had like uh, theater patrons dressed up like EMTs and pulling people out of there. <coughs> Excuse me. No, I think that kind of stuff maybe came later with some of the copycat filmmakers that were uh, also doing gimmicks. I can't remember which movie it is. One of my favorite ones. God, which movie was it? Oh man, was it? Uh, I think it was Mister Sardonicus. Sardonicus, where 
they gave out they gave out cards to all the theater patrons where you could vote. They would stop the movie at at the at the uh, towards the end of the picture, and everybody in the audience could vote for how the movie would end. You had two oh, different wow. options to choose, but the thing is. William Castle only ever shot just the one ending. He just knew everybody in the audience would vote for that ending, and luckily it paid off because everyone in the audience did vote for that one ending. <laughs> so that's probably my favorite. But with Straight Jacket, all he really did on this one, I mean, it's still cool. It's still cooler than anything we get going, than going to the movies today. But he gave out um, little cardboard axes when you went to the movies. Yeah. And also. I mean, almost. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'll just say one last thing here. Um, um, uh, did you guys notice at the very, very end when the um, the Columbia logo popped back up that the Columbia lady was missing her head? Oh, for real? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was That's awesome. awesome. Yep. Yeah, I have to go back and look for that. Yeah, man. I mean, one could almost say that, like, uh, one could, well, one could argue that his promotional... You know, his movies were almost secondary to his uh, promotional uh, gimmicks. I mean, that's what he's really n- probably most commonly known for. I mean, you get movies like like jo- uh, Joe Dante's Matinee, where John Goodman is obviously William Castle in, in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, movie another like Popcorn. Popcorn, I mean, straight up steals Percepto, the, the gimmick of Percepto. Oh, yeah. Um, for the uh, the Electrocution Man or whatever that movie was called uh, in that. Chris so, Glover's dad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of torn because I love the gimmick stuff and I love the, the fact that he would always do this. But at the same time, you know, he just kind of always got this reputation of being a schlockmeister because he will always do these goofy gimmicks. Um, but one, they always worked. But man, go back and watch the movies again, man. They there there's so much more than just the gimmick. So because you can't you yeah. can't do those gimmicks watching it on VHS, but yet those these movies still hold up. All right, so we should move on to um, our, our next movie. Uh, Andy, what is the next movie we're going to be talking about? Uh, to to me, this is the uh, quintessential uh, William Castle film. Um, and personally, I would love to see a Criterion release of this, like the way they did with uh, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, nineteen, also made in nineteen fifty nine, with uh, in concurrence with uh, the Tingler, is uh, the House on Haunted Hill. Vincent Price, and you're invited to my party in the house on Haunted Hill, where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. So won't you come and make it eight? You'll see human heads without bodies. Mysterious pools of blood dripping from the ceiling. The walls move slowly in against you. Don't try to escape, you can't. Thank you. 
Are you ready, dear? Yes, damn you. The ghosts are waiting, so won't you join me in the house on Haunted Hill? Hurry, or you'll be late for your own funeral. And the premise of this film is uh, a very, very rich businessman by the name of Frederick Lauren, played by Vincent Price, is going to offer five people ten grand who agree to be uh, locked up for twelve hours in this, uh, basically this haunted mansion up on a hill, of course. And it's they have to spend. Uh, 12 hours there, and they will each get 10 grand. And of these characters, uh, there is the house owner, Watson Pritchard, who actually spent one night there, and he saw a lot of people killed. Um, personally, my favorite character in, uh, you know, of course, next to Vincent Price, uh, my favorite character in the movie, uh, he's played by Elijah Cook, who also ended up acting again with, uh, Vincent Price in uh, I can't remember what year it was released off the top of my head, but the haunted Roger Corman's The Haunted Palace. Um, another uh, character by uh, named Lance Schroeder is a test pilot, and he's played by Richard Long, and he was known uh, for his roles in the Western uh, TV series uh, The Big Valley. A writer, uh, uh, reporter. Who also has gambling problems, played by Ruth. Uh, her her name is uh, Ruth Bridges, played by Julie Mitchum, a doctor uh, who's a psychiatrist, and he thinks he's basically co- going to this party because he's studying uh, uh, hysteria. Uh, another uh, one. Another guest uh, is by the name of Nora Manning, works for uh, Frederick Lauren, played by Vincent Price. Uh, is the uh, her, excuse me? Her name is Nora Manning, and she is played by Carolyn Craig, who we unfortunately lost to suicide in 1970 uh, at age 36. His wife, uh, Frederick Lauren's wife, Annabelle Lauren. Uh, is played by Carol Omart, and she was Miss Utah in 1947. Uh, all the guests arrive in hearses, and basically, like I said, the gimmick is you have to stay there for 12 hours, and uh, you will each get $10,000. Uh, there is, uh, like we talked about previously in the tingler there is uh you know marital disputes between annabelle and frederick and i love the the bedroom scene between uh frederick and annabelle which is uh vincent price and carol omart and basically she says you know she's tried to poison him and they just have like this witty banner and he says you'll slip up one of these days which is some big damn foreshadowing um, <laughs> uh uh, I just think, uh, for for me in this movie, the uh, the chemistry between uh, Frederick and Annabelle is is great. It's what does it for me. Uh, also, in you know some of uh, Pritchard, you know Pritchard's lines in this movie is like, uh, 
he talks about you know the severed heads of all the people in there and they say you can hear them sometimes at night they whisper to each other and then cry uh i that there's so many uh references that i found you know of this movie like rob zombie used a lot of this clips from his movies in his videos um like i think it was i'm your boogeyman and uh, I've actually seen clips of this, and this is a really obscure reference. Uh, there's a there was a commercial for uh, Super Nintendo's Super Ghoul and Ghost, and they use clips from this movie as well. Um, I love the fact that Pritchard gives him a tour of the house, you know, and he tells him like all of these horrible things that happened in each of the rooms, and you know, the blood stain starts marking. Uh, the Ruth Bridges character, you know, it drips onto her hand. Um, but there's one thing it, that I noticed in a Tarantino-esque kind of way, like, you know, multiple characters, you know, they, they all exist in one universe. Now, I can't prove this, but did you, did you guys notice that there was a guy that was electrocuted at the beginning of The Tingler, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I couldn't find the name of that character on any of the IMDb stuff, but they said uh, Mr. Norton owned this wine, owned this, owned the house earlier, and he did a lot of experimenting with wines. And he says he was electrocuted later. So in my mind, Mr. Norton was. You know, the guy that was electrocuted at the beginning of the Tingler, and he's the one that threw his wife into the wine vat. Mm. That's how that's how I want to piece it together and just, you know, because it, you know, ties it up in a nice, pretty little bow. Um, I don't want to talk about every single little thing, but um, I want I want to get your guys's side to it. You know, of course, you know, with, uh, you know, the blind tear caretaker and all this and that and just i think some of pritchard's lines are just some of the best so but uh but before i before i let you guys loose on it personally my favorites um uh my favorites uh scene is when uh vince is describing you know the situation to the guests you know it's like and he's he says, you know, you all get $10,000 if you stay the full night. If I should die, and he says, if I should die, and he looks over at his wife, who's been trying to kill him this so long, and he kind of gets this grin that says, I know what you're thinking, you sneaky little bitch. And then he kind of <laughs> addresses, you know, the rest of the guests, and he says, my, you will be paid for by my estate, which, yeah, that, that whole scene just kind of does it for me. So, anyway, yeah, guys, go ahead. This was another one we've played at the Capitol. I love watching it in the theater. Nice. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fun one to watch with a group of people. has a lot of uh, moments that are that are actually, you know, laugh out loud, but not necessarily intentional, but it's still so damn good. Like, this is a great, great film for Vincent Price. Uh, and, yeah, it's just pure castle. I mean, I think this is, when I think of, him i think of this movie so yeah this is one of if not the first horror movie i ever saw um i 
back when I was on as a regular, I think I spoke a couple of times about there was this family friend who kind of got me into horror movies when I was real young. Starting out showing you know things like this, uh, Night of the Living Dead, The Giant Claw. I know those two things, like House on Haunted Hill, Night of the Living Dead, Giant Claw, all black and white. That's about all they have in common. Quite, quite the disparity in, in tone and quality. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the first one. She's ever like, okay, he obviously likes morbid stuff. Like, uh, let, let's see how he does with, with this one and you know of course the blind caretaker scared the crap out of me as a kid oh yeah uh, and, and everything like that but so so I've got a real soft spot for this one because this was right at the beginning of the journey you know this is the movie that kind of planted the seed um, and I, I never god I, I don't know how many times I've watched this now and I still don't quite know what to make of the ending that you know, throughout the whole thing, there's every time something ookity spookity comes up, it's explained away. But throughout, you know, it's always part of the wife's plot. But at the very end, you know, Watson Pritchard, his fears have fuck all to do with everything else that's going on in this movie. Yeah, he's like, no, no, none of this, whatever you're talking about, it doesn't matter. There's ghosts here. We're going to join them. And then the very end suggest, and it's such an interesting little tease that we never get to find out, but it's suggested very strongly that there really are other forces at work in that house. It just so happens that, you know, that's not the main thrust of the movie, but then, of course, the remake kind of explores that. Um, a remake, which I really, really like, by the way. That doesn't happen very often, but I think it's great. Or is it the forces in the house that are forcing the hands of the guests? Well, that could is that what he, Is that what he... Is, was that what he was implying, perhaps? Yeah. What I want to know is, are we to infer that after Vincent Price learned of the plot between his wife and the doctor to off him, and after the doctor died, like, there's some real forethought into this, because he would have had to have learned woodworking and marionetting before the party even happened. And then once the doctor happened to die and the opportunity presented itself, defleshed the doctor's skeleton and carved and built a puppeteer rig on the fly to, <laughs> to operate that skeleton to frighten his wife into falling into the acid fat. Well, I think he used the acid to get the flesh off the doctor. Right. And... Uh, yeah, that's what I mean, I mean all, all the all the rest of that requires some a, a, a impressive amount of planning on his part. And, and, you know, making a pulley system, you know, down there, and uh, yeah. Well, it's it's like in the Tingler, and this was gonna, this was my point that I've been leading to this whole thing. Um, William, like this movie in the Tingler's got like these supernatural scenes in it that get explained away as if it's some bad Scooby-Doo plot, right? You know, it's old Mr. Withers. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yet those things that are happening in those supernatural moments don't make any sense when you realize it was really human interaction that was making these moments happen. Like in Tingler... You know, it's it's the theater owner, it's her husband that's doing these things, yet how did he get from the one room to the other room? How is he making all the doors and the lights, you know, like all the lights turn off on their own and all the doors to move independently? 
And did he crawl into a bathtub full of blood, hold his breath so he could stick his arm <laughs> out at her? So it's, it's the same thing here. It's like, yeah, he had time to rig up that skeleton to raise up out of the out of the acid bath. Like, like the the supernatural stuff. It's a lot of really cool imagery, but it's. But I also feel like part of me thinks that William Castle, when his approach to horror is to like keep it grounded in reality. Because we have two different movies now that have supernatural scenes in them, supernatural elements that are just explained away of like, I mean, the whole theme of House on Haunted Hill is explained away of like, well, these are just humans doing tricks. Yeah. The harness, at least the in the Tingler. In the Tingler, some of the stuff is like, there really is a monster. Yeah. And then I, I just like to imagine that in the scene where the where the Air Force pilot and, and the pretty girl are. Uh, exploring the, I just saw the, this weird old lady through here in the next room. Vincent Price is just furiously whittling. <laughs> He's got like a, a little butt knife and a pile of wood scraps, just trying to make this marionette thing going. I only have so long to get this right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, though, I, I feel like to me, I feel like William Castle doesn't want to make like a supernatural film. Yes, the Tingler itself is a monster but he's still trying to explain it away by science yes it's the shittiest science ever that makes no <laughs> damn sense but it's on the same logic of of house on haunted hill or whatever of like he he's trying too hard to ground into reality where it's not going to work in reality whatsoever he could have easily said that the tingler is maybe like some some a ancient evil that is that is attaching uh, attaching these worm like things to people's spines, or maybe like an alien race that's trying to. No, he does tries to avoid all of that by still trying to make it like real and sciency. But yet, it's far more far fetched than if you were just to say, "Oh, these are some aliens that are um, slug creatures that have attached themselves to our spines." Um, another thing I'd like to to comment on about how he, you know, like he says, he kind of, he kind of tends to, you know, a little bit, I think he broke his own rules in this movie because it's hammered into our brains that, okay, this door is solid steel. There's bars on all of the windows. And then towards the end of the movie, we see, um, uh, Annabelle floating out there outside of the room when the rope, you know, kind of ravels around, uh, Nora's, you know, legs, and she's supposed to be hovering outside. You know, it's like, okay, how did she get outside? Yeah, when and how like did she make the rope do that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, I, I know she's a she's not a big woman, but I don't think she's going to fit through the you know the bars on the windows. Um, yeah, there's just there's there's a lot of stuff that you have to really, really you know suspend your disbelief. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and, and both I of... think... The... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the gimmicks also help with that. Like, when we're sitting in our homes with our high-def, widescreen, flat-screen TVs and our Blu-ray players and everything else, you know, things that weren't even imagined when this movie came out, no one expected anyone to be able to re-watch these things multiple times. So when you're sitting yeah. and, 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 you know, so that we have these moments that we can concentrate on this 
But when you're sitting in the theater with Percepto, you start to question the tingler, you get zapped. (laughs) You start to question House on Haunted Hill with Emerjo about the time you're going, now, hey, wait a minute, a skeleton comes flying out of the screen and swoops over your head, and those questions go poof. Yep, exactly. Exactly. We really... We really debated on trying to. We were trying to figure out a way when we played it to have one like drop from the projection booth, um, or somehow rig like a line from the screen up to the projection booth and have a skeleton fly through. But we ended oh. up just putting one in the uh, theater in a seat. Nice, <laughs> nice. Mostly as a tribute, and also because someone at Rocky Horror threw up on the chair, and uh, <laughs> it was like red wine, so it stained the seat, and it was a Ugh. lot. Yeah, it was a huge mess, so we just put the skeleton in the seat so no one was sitting in. <laughs> awesome. I will. I do want to say that, like, uh, between uh, Nora and uh, uh, Nor- Norma Manning and uh, Annabelle, these are some OG Scream Queens, man. I mean, I think they should get a nod. I mean, just... We, Remember when that, before Carol gets, like, you know, pushed into, like, the vat of acid, man? Watch that chick scream! Well, the movie starts with a, the movie starts with one big, like, loud scream. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But but she's like, you know, she's just bellowing that shit out for, it seemed like, a straight minute, man. She's just like, you know, Vince is doing, like, this, you know, this off-screen dialogue, and she's just, blah! That's what I love, that intro, you know, with the heads and the floating uh, Vincent Price head where he's like, you know, we'll have drinks and ghosts and fun. It's like, oh, this sounds like a fucking, I'm in, like, perhaps a few murders. Right. (laughs) Does anybody, anybody remember 13 Ghosts? It's been so long since I've seen that one. Uh that's that's that has the uh, the gimmick with the uh, put on your you yeah. know your three D glasses now. It's just like so you could see the ghosts. Was, yeah. So you could see the ghost. Uh, that's about all I remember. Okay. Uh, I I own it, but I haven't seen it in probably shit over a decade. I was kind of hoping to rewatch it too to see if my if this expands my theory. Just wondering if. It was actually ghosts in that movie, or if it, if that was all explained away. But again, in both of these movies, even though they try to explain explain away all this like uh, supernatural stuff that's happening, there's still these little moments at the end that of like well, maybe it is supernatural. Yeah, and then Prit- Pritchard was shit faced like halfway through the movie, though, right? <laughs> Wasn't he? He was just always digging into the hooch. You would be too if you were haunted. Yeah, if my brother got hacked to shit up, you know. And you you had mentioned the the remake of this movie, which I love too, and I also really I, loved the Thirteen Ghost remake. I wish uh, Dark uh, Dark Castle would have kept doing William Castle remakes. Those are the only this, two that, that they did. The House on Haunted Hill and Phantasm Special Edition were the very first two DVDs I ever bought, and I still have them. Nice. Like, the inception of DVD was like, I bought Phantasm and the remake of House on Haunted Hill. Nice. 
And that's Jeffrey Combe in the remake, right? It's been so long since I've seen yeah. the remake. Dr. Vandekut. Mm-hmm. Chris Kattan plays uh, Wilson <laughs> Pritchett in, in one of his only tolerable film roles. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw the remake probably two or three years ago. My friend Adam was like, you, you should see. It's actually pretty decent. And uh, I was not very impressed, but I didn't hate it. So I guess it's, I don't know. It, it's, you know, it's public domain. So I'm surprised it hasn't been done re- more recently again. I know, and I, I think like with, with uh, you know, horror fans of this day and age, if they're familiar with the House on Haunted Hill, it's because it's been in public domain. Like, that's that's why like uh, everybody associates this movie with William Castle. But it was also one of William Castle's biggest hits theatrically, though. It kind of, uh, according to IMDb, anyway, you can take that for what it's worth. It said that, uh, um, like. Alfred Hitchcock took notice of the box office for House on Haunted Hill, and that was one of his inspirations to make Psycho. Which awesome. is, makes it doubly, well, doubly, however, it makes it more surprising that uh, that this is the one that winds up being public domain then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, mm. as far as I know, the Tingler isn't certainly straightjacket, and all of his more, more uh, straight-up murder mysteries aren't. Yeah, as far as I know, this is the only one. Maybe 13 Ghosts is public domain, too? Because I remember the VHS copy I had of 13 Ghosts was on, like, fucking Good Times or some one of those (laughs) shitty labels like that. Yeah, that's true. I think that is, too. So it probably is. But it says, uh, failure to, or failure of the original copyright holder to renew the film's copyright resulted in its falling into public domain, meaning that virtually anybody could duplicate it and sell it. Um, So, yeah, I, I just. That one was just the poor circumstance of somebody not renewing the copyright. So, bummer. But I w- but I will say I I truly adore this film and it's uh, it's like uh, the way Brian alluded to. If it's a great starter film, if a kid can tolerate black and white, uh, I think it's a great starter horror film in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I suppose the tolerance to that sort of thing was a lot different thirty years ago. Absolutely, <laughs> the first time. But uh, you know, I, I watched this with my daughter when she was really young, and she liked black and white movies. We watched this, and we watched uh, *Fiend Without a Face*, that cool stop motion killer brain movie, oh, yeah. and a b- bunch of other stuff. And and so I think like if you, you have to get them young enough before they get completely addicted to just stupid fucking YouTube videos and shit that corrodes their attention span completely. But uh, but if you get them young enough, yeah, they don't really care that it's in black and white, I think. It, it, it almost adds some, like, fun to it. Like, oh, movies used yeah, to be like, like this? It. Like, it's more of a curiosity thing. Yeah, yeah. a certain ambiance to it. And, yeah. um, because I was, I, I, I was kind of primed by watching... Um, you know, uh, re-showings of House of Wax on TBS with my, you know, with my mom. And I, I would sit and I was like, Mom, what's this? You know, and I saw the, I saw this, you know, this, you know, this guy dragging his feet with this, you know, this weird, you know, I guess Steven Tyler Aerosmith hat at the time. And, um, 
and his and his face was all marred up and I was like, Mom, who's that? She just goes, Oh, that's that's Vincent Price. He made all he made a lot of these movies and I think it was just all it was like full speed ahead from there. I mean, I guess that's kind of like really my introduction to horror. Well, my introduction to you know, started with the black and whites. Uh, Count Morbius on Channel 8, TV horror host, and he would show all the Universal pictures. You know, so mine was black and white. So when I first saw, so movies like Night of the Living Dead that really made me the hardcore horror fan that I am today, um, seeing Night of the Living Dead and seeing it as a black and white movie, so making comparisons to the Universal Monster movies, and the fact that everybody fucking dies at the end, and it's such a bummer ending, that I, it it t- totally caught me off guard, you know, because you, you didn't get that. Uh, you, the Universal Monster movies, you know, were always had safe, safe, happy endings, so... But yeah. Watch House on Haunted Hill, folks. Watch it. Yes. Yeah, Sorry. definitely. Put, it'll put you in the Halloween mood for sure. That's what I love these movies. Like this time of year, throw those on. It's awesome. Yes. Yes. This one hey, in particular is definitely give you that that Halloween feel. You don't even have to rent it. Go. I mean, go to go to YouTube. There's I mean, a. It's that, it's that simple. Yeah. There's a 1080p digital remaster, beautiful version on YouTube for free. So. Which is funny because I watched it on Amazon Prime and the copy on Amazon Prime. I'm pretty sure is a VHS rip. So. <laughs> which is which which has its own sort of feel to it as well, you know. I right. Mean, I just, yeah, because uh, I I have it on DVD, like in several of those multi movie packs, and I was like, oh, I bet the copy on YouTube is going to be better quality, and of course it was. But yeah. like you said, it has some kind of there's there's a certain charm to watching a poor quality version too so yeah yeah the version but i, I have wanna, but i want a criteria criteria onto this yeah that'd be with awesome all with all sorts of bells and whistles attached to it i'd love it comes with your that, own floating that's skeleton. just it i just want the extras i want you know commentaries documentaries I, you know film quality is neither here nor there but yeah it would it would be nice to have a definitive uh, made with love version of this movie that you know, if not a lot of people's first, is definitely a, a, a piece of nostalgia for a lot of you know comes at the beginning of a lot of journeys into the world of horror. Yeah, give it, give us pictures of like you know the skeleton and the re- and the real pulley system uh, that was in the theaters, you know, stuff like that. That would be cool, or you know. Like some schematics, I'm pretty sure there's some some like drawings out there of of the pulley system and how it's to work and the, the dimensions and all that. How about show, us a, one, show us one in motion, man. Yeah. How about Tim, Tim Burton give us a William Castle, for, you know, Ed Edwood style movie? Ooh, oh man. Cool. Yeah. Not Tim Burton now though. Like some get someone different, but just a. Just a guy in a black suit with glasses on his head and a big stogie in his mouth, you know? Yep, gotta have the cigar. Yeah, gotta have the stogie. Yep, that's definitely his trademark. Well, cool. Uh, Any honorable mentions from you guys? I know we kind of talked about uh, a couple here and there, but any honorable mentions on William Castle? Oh, yeah, 
like you said, 13 ghosts and, um, yeah, we, 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 we really kind of tackled my favorites really. Uh, yeah, I'd say 13 ghosts gets an honorable mention. For sure. Any movies that of, of him that either he directed or produced that you guys have seen that we haven't talked about? Brian, you, I don't think so. You saw I Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. You saw that uh, th- that movie I've been dying to see like forever from 1975, Bug, with the bug oh, that oh. causes people to set on fire. Yeah, that that one's a lot of fun. That was back when the Sci-Fi Channel used to be good. <laughs> uh, when I first when I first got Satellite Dish out at the farm, they did an entire weekend of just nothing but bug movies. So I got Phase 4, nice. which is one of my oh. all-time favorite sci-fi movies. Very cool. And, uh, and, and they showed Bug, yeah, and that, one, that one's really cool. And Bug's, just, uh, Bug's the last thing he ever produced, too, yeah. Yeah. And they remade that, too, didn't they? They Bug? did. Uh, there's been other movies called Bug, but I doubt if it's anywhere <laughs> oh. near the insanity You're, you're not talking movies. about the movie with uh, Michael Shannon and... Um, Ashley Judd, are you? <laughs> I I thought, yeah, that's I think that's the one. Yeah, no, that is a that's, very very different thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, two different things. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Andrew, this movie is about these monstrous bugs that come up from the ground, right? Something like that. An earthquake unleashes prehistoric bombardier beetles, played by Madagascar hissing cockroaches, which uh, can shoot fire out of their asses and develop a uh, high mind sentience. And uh, I believe it's is it Bradley Whitford. I care not Bradley Whitford. Um, the guy from Piranha. I'm blanking on the actor's name, but anyway, well, they, just, they come up and, and they come up out of the ground and start everything on fire and uh, eventually spell words like they they crawl into patterns on the wall to spell words out to communicate with humanity <laughs> tell me that does not sound like, like an a, awesome movie andy well it well what it sounds like it sounds like a very rectal flammable pacific rim if you ask me because isn't that like the same <laughs> like uh they come up from the ground granted they're underneath the sea but it's like you know uh yeah i hell hell yeah i'll watch it shit <laughs> If you can find it, I have yet to be able to find this freaking flame-throwing anal cockroaches. I gotta have it. It came out on DVD very briefly and went out of print very quickly, and to my knowledge, has not been reissued. I don't know if there's some weird stuff with the rights or what, but yeah, it would be nice if somebody would put that out again. He um, in '63 he did a remake of I think it's a '20s movie. Um, called the old dark house, but oh, his, I forgot he was the one who remade that. Yeah, but his version is a comedy with Tom Poston of all people, the guy who was the handyman on the New Heart Show. But is it an intentional comedy? That's that's the oh. case. You would have to ask with William Castle. No, it was because it, you know the star was a comedian, so it was. Yeah, it was intentional. And that's one I really want to see as well. Along with, um, there's one called Nightwalker that I always thought sounded really cool. Um, but I I also own um, Mr. Sadonicus and Homicidal. Which Those got, are two I've always wanted to see because I I've heard so too. much about them. And that picture from Mr. Sardonicus of the guy with the 
that creepy grin, that sort of uh, pre-Anton Fibes <laughs> kind of look, is yeah. so famous, and I've never oh, seen yeah. it. it. It's it's a great one. It's a really good one. And oh, a macabre. I forgot I had I had that one too. I also have macabre. Um, but uh, homicidal, like I mentioned before, that Alfred Hitchcock. Saw the box office returns on House on Haunted Hill, so he decided to make Psycho. But it was very apparent after Psycho came out that William Castle was really trying to rip off um, Alfred Hitchcock, especially when you see Homicidal. Not to give any spoilers, but that probably was already too big of a spoiler. But it's still an awesome movie. Yeah, so, yeah, William Castle. We missed you, guy. He passed away in 77. Slick Willie. <laughs> yep, so... So, yeah, so that, uh, that is it for the main conversation. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it'll be segments time here on Attack of the Killer Podcast. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. All right, we're back, and it's time for segments, and it's time for everybody's favorite segment, shout-outs. It's time for... Shout-outs! 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 All right, this week we asked everybody what their favorite William Castle film was. Pretty straightforward. Um going to go over to facebook lisa mary says house on haunted hill was my first and favorite obviously a favorite of ours too mike murphy had quite a bit to say says wow where to start before his theater annex he was really just a director for hire he did noirs westerns and drama with that i'll choose something most of your listeners haven't heard of it's a small world from 1950 and no this is no disney picture here's a synopsis pulled from the internet harry musk is one in a million that means he's the one out of a million children who is perfectly proportioned but he will never grow larger than a typical six-year-old it's an odd choice for sure but i'm guessing i'm the only one ever thinking of this movie anyone seen that one no but now i want to can't say that i have all right. Well, Chad Planbeck says the spirit is willing because it's the only William Castle movie I legit saw in the theater Ooh. in the early 1970s. Nice. I think that's another like haunted house comedy movie. It just I have not it, heard of it. It just blows me away, man. We're we're the ones that are supposed to know all this stuff, and we got some of our listeners just totally schooling us. You know, <laughs> Bradford Dillman. That's the guy from Bug. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> driving me crazy. <laughs> Derek Bothello says The Tingler or House on Haunted Hill, the best movie he was involved in, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. T- 
Tim Lenner says, The Tingler, because it's an unhinged mess that hangs together entirely because of Vincent Price's performance. Because the monster is not very good puppet that has Neopet feet. <laughs> in which he, he, he shared a shared a picture of below so if you go to our facebook you can see what he's talking about strangling people with his jaws and creeping across the projector lens and because my group of knuckleheads got shushed by the drive-in staff for screaming too loudly during the audience participation sex section last monsterama i say if vincent price tells you to scream for your life you better be audible in another time zone that's right nice very good comment thank you to what Vinny says. Yeah. Joseph L. Zantas says, House on Haunted Hill. Perfect Halloween viewing. I've watched it who knows how many times, and it never gets old. And I agree. Mm-hmm. Rod Hutchinson says, 13 Ghosts, of course. Which we talked about. Yeah. John Watson says, Zots. I've always had a soft spot for this guilty pleasure, but the recent Blu-ray has given it that little extra. Never heard of that one. I've heard the title, but I've never seen that one. I've heard the title. The only thing I can, I, my knowledge of it is, is it has to do with something like with these little gold coins. So the gimmick with that is that you were given these gold coins when you uh, went to see the movie. Always some gimmick. <laughs> All right, Neil Kerr says, "I'm thinking the Tingler." When I watched it a few years ago with friends. We had to take a drink every time someone said Tingler or Tingle. Fun game, as I recall, which I don't very well. <laughs> <laughs> William Martell says, Undertow, great shot on location thriller about an ex-con frame for murder. No one believes he's innocent, so he must find the real killer himself. Nice. Don't know that one at all. Um, then Tim Lenner dropped a link to a 12-hour horror movie invasion, plugging stuff on our, our uh, posts, so uh, don't give him any attention and don't click the link. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jake Mander says, Mr. Sarnadocious? Sardonicus. Sardonicus. Supercalisardonicus. And he has a thumbs up and a thumbs down, which is a bit confusing. So I'm not sure what he's uh, doing there, but that's all of our setup. What he's doing is at the end of Mr. Sardonicus, they shot two endings, and the audience got to choose at the end whether the uh, main character lived or died by giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down, which ending they would show. Well, that's why we have Brian on today's episode. (laughs) Um, That was all of our shout-outs on Facebook. We didn't have any comments on instagram but um always keep an eye out on our facebook page our instagram and you can also call leave a voicemail at 415-952-6857 or 415-95-AOTKP um we actually had someone leave a voicemail i'm not sure if um jason will put it on this episode but we actually had someone record one just to spite me because i make fun of it every episode so um, (laughs) i hope jason does not edit it into this and i hope it's never heard and i hope you never leave another voicemail so that's that out so here's the voicemail (laughs) this is brian gospel i just want to give a big shout out to the guys at attack of the killer podcast for keeping me up all night helped me laugh and this one is for tad i hope this Find you well, friend. Bye. Good evening. 
I'm Brian Clark, director of such films as Revenge of the Mutant Splat Gore Monster and Die Screaming with Sharp Things in Your Head. And I'm here to tell you a little bit about our new miracle podcast technology, Insane Around. I feel obligated to warn you that during the following segment, some of the physical reactions and sensations experienced by us here in the studio will, for the first time in podcast history, be experienced by some of you listening at home. Be warned that you may feel insane Mike's breath on the back of your neck, the pinch of groping fingers on your butt cheeks, <laughs> perhaps even a slimy tongue caressing your ear. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. If at any time any of the sensations of insane surround should become too intense, you may obtain immediate relief by spraying your listening device with mace and calling the police. Now that you've been warned, it's time for Insane's Picks. That's right, insane around. Brought to you by the Weinstein's. Okay, so this. Uh. <laughs> oh, too soon. <laughs> um, so this this episode of Insane's Picks. Um, I was thinking, like, what if there was a movie out there that was almost a shot-for-shot ripoff of Aliens, but take out the xenomorphs. And put in zombies instead. Oh, <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> and voila, you have from 2007, Zombies, The Beginning. Directed by, <laughs> yes, Italian schlockmeister Bruno Mattei. Woo! <laughs> oh, and sadly, his last film. But he went out on a bang with this one, I'll tell you that. A group of rough-and-tough marines are sent on a mission by the uh, company called the uh, Tyler Inc. to investigate this island where there's supposedly been this zombie outbreak, and they're sent in to, to get back the property of Tyler, of Tyler Inc. Um, but uh, things go very, very wrong. And the uh, the only survivor from the first from the uh, first outbreak on the island, Doctor Sharon uh, DiMaio, um, who is still traumatized for some reason, she goes along with them uh, on this rescue mission. This movie is awesome, and it is literally that it is uh, trying to be a hundred percent aliens, but with zombies instead. And um, it is Bruno Mattei, in my opinion, at his at the top of his schlock game. Between this and um, Shocking Dark, which is another um, straight-up Aliens ripoff. Uh, but that dashes of Terminator in that one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That, that's true. Dashes of Terminator in that. And um, but and what I love about Bruno Mattei, he just he never shies away from ripping off other films. So much so that he will steal music from other movies. He will steal stock sh footage from other movies. And in the case of this movie, he uses stock footage from the move from the 1995 film *Crimson Tide*. <laughs> he uses wow. He uses shots from that movie in his movie. Um, 
the the zombie the zombie mayhem is a lot of fun, especially that weirdo third act where the doctor is confronted with this like giant brain alien like <coughs> glob um zombie birthing stomach thing or whatever with all these big hoses coming out of it and it's talking to her through telepathy it's freaking nuts it makes no sense and that's why i love it um this was put out on dvd i forget the name of the company now intervision intervision thank you i don't think it's ever hit blu-ray do you know if it has brian it has not because yeah, this is one of the four movies he put out right at the end of his his life. Two zombie movies, two cannibal movies, shot on digital video of a quality so bad that it looks like they were produced as a PBS special for a local affiliate in the uh, early '90s. So I cannot imagine anyone ever bothering to put this on Blu-ray because man, High Def would not do it any favors. <laughs> That's true, and normally I don't. I, I frown upon like stuff that's like shot that way, like you said, like shot on video, uh, in, in digital video where um, everything's everything's a little too crisp. But there's a charm to this one uh, from from Bruno on, on this one, and yeah, it's 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 an amazing film so it's it's a little bit harder to find but if you can find it i recommend it i think at one time it was in full on youtube i don't know if that's true anymore but i remember the first time i saw it i watched it in full on youtube but that's been a few years ago um in- intervision is an affiliate of severin that's where i got all my uh, dvds of these movies from and it, i don't know it may, it might be out of print but as oh. last i knew they still were available so maybe you know you might still be able to find them for uh, cheap on the Severin website or cool, Amazon yeah. or wherever. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, hopefully hopefully so. So, But that's Insane's Picks for this episode from 2007, the Bruno Mattei final film, his, his swan song, Zombies, The Beginning. He even rips his own self off, you know, you realize that? Like, you look <laughs> at the box for this thing, and it's it's the face that he used for the poster art on Hell of the Living Dead, which also was, that face was ripped off from Lucio Fulci's uh, City, of the, City of the Living Dead. So, not only does he rip off other people, but then he continually recycles it for, for other stuff later on. And making an Italian zombie, an 80s Italian zombie movie in the year 2007. It's just awesome. <laughs> Anyway, that's it for this episode. I want to thank everybody out there for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I really had a blast talking about William Castle, man. This has been great. Um, Special thanks there to Brian for uh, joining us. Uh, We've missed you, buddy. It's great great having you on. Glad to be back. Mind if I uh, plug something real quick? uh, Oh, yeah, please. Recently started writing for Scream Magazine. Cool. Yeah, my cool. Uh, I, I believe my first article, which is on the Son of Kong, uh, is a making of piece, will be out in the October issue. So probably towards the end of the month, they release uh, every other month. And then I've also turned in one on uh, Blackula, <clears throat> Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream. And then uh, I've been 
whoring myself out to various and sundry podcasts here and there. I've done uh, mostly shows that are still on the PFPN, but uh, right around the same time this episode drops, uh, myself and Isabella will be on an episode of It Came From a Monster Movie, uh, which is a show run by our friend Henry Winston from G-Fest, and we'll be talking about dog soldiers on that. Cool. Well, awesome. That's cool. And I'm really excited for you, man, uh, writing for Scream. That is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty excited about that myself. Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that's it for this episode of Attack of the Killer Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Oh, no, could this be the end of... What? <laughs>